The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Here's your host, Jason A. Meiske. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Sample Chapter Podcast, episode 164. And once again, yes, don't touch that dial. This really is your host, Jason A. Meiske. Uh, I don't have a cold again. No, uh, this time I caught COVID. Uh, yep, it finally hit my house. Uh, thankfully, we are we are doing well. Um, it's a pretty mild case, I guess you'd call it. Um, but still, it's uh, you know been uh, been taxing and uh, very tiring and. Uh, you know, I apologize for this episode coming out late because I kind of forgot what day it was there for a while. Um, you, know, you spend so much time at home just sleeping a lot and it uh, things get away. But So I'm, I'm not going to talk too much. Uh, we're going to pretty much just kind of hand things over to, our, uh, to my sponsors and podcast friends. And then uh, we're going to get right on over to our interview with Tracy Dobmeyer and Wendy Katzman. They are the Seattle writing dynamic duo behind their debut novel, Girls with Bright Futures. And it's a lot of fun and a conversation that uh, you're going to really enjoy. So stay tuned for that's coming up here in just one moment, right after this. Hello, friends. Jason here. And I wanted to take a moment to tell you about a great offer from Audible. Like you, I'm very busy. I have a full-time job, a family, I'm a thriller author, and I do this weekly podcast. But I also love to read. That's where Audible is a lifesaver for me. Whether I'm mowing the yard, working out, driving back and forth to work, or doing some other menial task, I can still listen to an incredible book through Audible. And now you can get a free 30-day trial by going to audibletrial.com slash samplechapter. By doing that, you'll not only have that 30-day trial, you'll also gain access to guided wellness programs, theatrical performances, A-list comedy, exclusive Audible originals, and even podcasts like the Sample Chapter Podcast. Last year is the first time I ever achieved my own personal reading goals, and it was because of some wonderful titles I listened to on Audible. Some of those titles were Ready Player Two by Ernest Cline, narrated by Will Wheaton, the Awaken Online series from Travis Bagwell, narrated by David Stifle. Patient Zero by Jonathan Mayberry, narrated by the incredible Ray Porter. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention previous guest Scott Meyer with his Magic 2.0 series, narrated by Luke Daniels. It's a lot of fun and definitely worth your time. Hey, full disclosure, by signing up at audibletrial.com slash samplechapter, the show does get a little monetization, which goes directly towards any production needs uh, with the show. So you're also helping us out here by signing up. So what are you waiting for? Head on over now to audibletrial.com slash samplechapter and start your free 30-day trial today. Jason here. Hey, I wanted to take a moment and tell you about my favorite writing tool, Scrivener. 
Now I know you've heard about Scrivener because their writing software has been embraced by hundreds of thousands of other writers like you and I, from the novice to best-selling novelists. The reason we all use it is because of Scrivener's core concept to bring all the writing tools you use together in a single application. And with tools like automatic backup, character maps, project goals, and let's not forget that amazing corkboard, you can see why I use Scrivener every day. As a bonus for Sample Chapter Podcast listeners, use code CHAPTER for 20% off your desktop version. Scrivener Writing Software, built by writers for writers. What evil lurks in the heart of Don Mondo? Only Chucky the Buddha, the enforcer of the Mondo Mafia, knows. Join them each week on the Mondo Method Podcast as Chuck tries to get Don Mondo to reveal what is best in life and where he hid the bodies. Oh, they also talk about writing and being professional authors. The Mondo Method Podcast with Armand Rosamelia and Chuck Buddha. Weekly, wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, my friends. Welcome to another episode of the Sample Chapter Podcast. This week, we have another dynamic duo of writers coming onto the show Tracy Dobmeyer and Wendy Katzman, they have been great friends for over 20 years. Their friendship has sustained them through ups and downs of raising kids, juggling careers, and creating new family traditions. Girls with Bright Futures are their debut novel. It is a dark and suspenseful journey in the cutthroat world of college admissions. Welcome to the show, Tracy and Wendy. Thank you so much. Great to be here. We're very excited to be here. Thank you. I'm so excited to have you on. It's always a, a lot of fun for me, not only to just to get to meet uh, one author, but to have a duo come on. And uh, it seems like there's always so many more laughs. <laughs> That's how we roll. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. And already this morning, we've almost had a spit take, and we've had a few laughs before we even started the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, all right, so... Let's see. I'm in, really intrigued with your background. Uh, one of you uh, was a lawyer, and the other was a marketing, or was marketing medical technologies, and now you're writing. So uh, let's start off here. Which one was the uh, the lawyer? That was me, Tracy, and I was the um, marketing executive working with emerging medical technologies. Okay. Now, was writing a part of your all's background or maybe like a uh, one of these days kind of a thing? Uh, you know, writing was definitely a part of both of our backgrounds, but it was always more, um, you know, in the nonfiction arena. Um, mm. You know, I wrote briefs. I wrote contracts. I wrote marketing materials. I think that we had... Um, We'd never actually thought about writing fiction, and uh, but we were we kind of got to a point in our lives where we wanted to have a little bit more fun. Our our um our chosen professions were great, but they also were were very linear in their um approach. And I think we really wanted to try something different and to challenge ourselves. And we both are lifelong readers, and so um, we just kind of started talking about this after many years of talking about different potential collaborations. 
Yeah, earlier we'd had a lot of nonfiction book ideas, and we'd had business ideas. We even had a, a game board, a board game idea. Oh. Um, we had a lot of volunteering together, so it seemed inevitable we were going to do something. It was just a question of what. <laughs> okay, and that's quite the jump. I know from my own experience here at home. My my wife, uh, she finished college and is now a speech language pathologist. So she writes a lot of papers based in the medical world and she would come to me like you've got to help me write this paper i'm like that's not my world i don't know what i'm doing and so i help her but i'm like adding flair i'm like okay and now you know they could they could do this and she's like no 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 they're not going on an adventure this is nonfiction. <laughs> i'm like okay 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 she's trying to like pull me back an down adventure would be so much more fun <laughs> <laughs> yeah like, well, wouldn't it be better if this happened? She's like, no, I have to give facts. Stop, stop helping me. <laughs> it's so constraining. <laughs> <laughs> so so what was that transition like uh, going into the, the make-believe world of fiction? Well, I think for us it was... It was a very joyful transition because it was so liberating to be able to just use our imaginations. Um, but I think, you know, for us in the beginning, it was also really hard. Um, we were insecure. We didn't have any formal training. We certainly didn't have an MFA. Um, and, you know, we struggled with that a little bit. Um, we, we are at the time we were in our late forties. Now we're in our early fifties. So it was a big, it was a big leap for us. And, um, you know, we, one of my friends, um, years ago said to me that women often think they need more degrees, more training, more external validation to take on new career directions. And oftentimes that's just not true. So, one of the things, there was a book that we read that kind of changed everything for us. It was Daring Greatly by Brene Brown. So we were at this point where we're starting to launch our kids out into the world. And you're, as mothers, we're telling our kids, you need to have courage and take risks. And But here, we weren't necessarily doing that. And that book changed everything and really inspired us that we needed to just get out there and have the courage to try and model that also for our kids. Yeah. <clears throat> the only flaw in the plan was that since neither of us had ever written a word of fiction, <laughs> we really didn't know <laughs> where to start. <laughs> so um, we, you know, we, we both worked really hard and we felt like we could hold each other and ourselves accountable if we could just figure out how to write a novel. So um, I kid you not, we literally one day pulled out our computers and Googled, how do you write a novel? Oh, wow. <laughs> so Google was truly our friend. And <laughs> and we devoured, you know, writing, not lots of writing craft books and, and just read a ton in our genre. And, you know, at the same time as it was scary it was, and difficult, it was also thrilling to be at this phase of life and learning something completely new and just being consumed by it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I remember uh, when I first, the first time I started taking writing seriously, I guess, would be, I, I took some correspondence courses. So back in the 90s, internet was a thing, but I didn't have it at my house yet. And my wife and I, we couldn't afford it. And plus that was way out in the country. And so everything was long distance. 
So getting online to uh, to do anything was going to cost us, you know, <laughs> an arm and a leg. Yeah. So yeah, correspondence courses was how I was learning writing at first, and it, it was so different. Whenever a couple years later, whenever we got internet, I'm like, oh wow, I can just put the form in an email. You're kidding oh. me. This is awesome. That would be revolutionary. Yeah, we were very very lucky because yes. there's so many amazing resources that are available for free um, mm-hmm. right out there that were incredibly helpful to us. Oh, my gosh. So what was the uh, your, your first book here that just came out? Or it, Did it just come out or or it's coming it out? Last Tuesday on February 2nd. Oh, my gosh. All right. So the, the book that just came out, Girls with Bright Futures, what was your inspiration? What brought this uh, you know, to life to where you're like, okay, that's the story we're going to write? Um, let's see. So where do we start? So I guess, you know, we've been friends for 20 years and we, between us, have sent, um, had sent three kids off to college and we just really, um, we, we noticed sort of a cultural moment that was happening in, um, in that college admissions world. And um, at the same time, we both, we had this really bizarre coincidence, um, between our families. So, um, basically when each of our three kids was applying to, or kind of in that college admissions pipeline, um, someone in each of our families had a, had a major health crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had, we, because we were so, such, you know, great friends, we, supported each other through all of that um, turmoil, but it also just gave us this really interesting lens on what was going on in our communities. And we felt like it was a really, we just, we wanted to understand it better. That's kind of why we decided to start writing. We just felt like there was so much there, it was such a meaty topic, and we wanted to just dig in. And we felt like we brought this unique perspective, the juxtaposition of, college madness against these real life health crises our families were going through. And it enabled us to step back a little bit. We were still caught up in the madness. I, you know, I, I will cop to that. Um, but we it just, no attempted murder. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Not even close. Not even close. <laughs> but it was just, it was a way we were seeing so much anxiety that was affecting families and kids and friendships and communities and writing this book and writing fiction was the vehicle that we used to explore what was happening. Okay. All right. I I wondered how much of it was like how long you'd been working on this versus the coincidence that in the last year we've got the, the college scandal and everything going on. And Oh my goodness. If imagine if your book had come out a year ago, (laughs) <laughs> should be buying like lottery tickets or your fortune tellers but we actually wrote the book um and had plotted the whole thing out before the operation varsity blues scandal broke and when we um read it in march of 2019 along with everybody else we really felt like the headlines had been ripped right from our manuscript mm-hmm. um so it was really something yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
And of course, we immediately thought, wouldn't it be so cool if Lori Loughlin or Felicity Huffman would blurb our book? (laughs) 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 I should have known before my girls applied to college. (laughs) (laughs) That didn't happen, but that's okay. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Uh, maybe, maybe now, maybe they'll, uh, they'll agree to do the movie. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. How, how long have you been working on it? Well, from start to finish, from kind of the day we decided to start writing fiction to our publication date was almost exactly five years. Okay. Um, and we had, you know, a number of iterations in that, um, in that time. And, and but it's, this is where we, we kind of ended up, we sold the book in the middle of um, 2019. Outstanding. And I got to say, that's uh, that's a little ahead of schedule of most of the authors, myself included, that I've talked with over the years. It's always that first book is always like seven to eight years or sometimes even 10 years for that first book. But getting the first one done is finally that like, oh, thank gosh, it's off my back. And now I can move on. Maybe it's because there were two of us. Right. <laughs> there you yeah. go. Oh, that's so fast. Yeah. <laughs> now, how many how many different ideas for stories did you go through before settling on this one? Well, over the past twenty years, we've had a lot of ideas. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe this first one really took us twenty years, right? I mean, that, that <laughs> but uh, from the five year mark, so when we really started this officially, when we say February two thousand sixteen. We knew it was going to be about college, and it was just a question of how do you tell that story. Ah. But we knew this was the story we were going to tell. And our first, our first take at that was um, more about friendship, female friendship, in in the context of college. And so college was a little bit more. It was still very present in our story, but it was maybe a little more um, backdrop than it ended up being. It really took center stage by the end. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, you know, it evolved, the story evolved and it evolved with what we became more and more fascinated by and, um, and, you know, the, the dictates of the market as well. Yeah. Okay. Now, what was the, what was the process that went into it? How, how did you write this is I I'm, I'm still waiting for the moment when I have a duo that tells me like, yes, uh, um, you know, Wendy sat down at the keyboard and I stood behind her with my arms crossed going, no, no, yes, <laughs> that's it. Well, some days it looks like that for us. Because <laughs> <laughs> we, we write in Google Docs. So okay. especially through the pandemic, as we've been working on other things, um, we can see what the other one is doing because we're on Zoom and in Google Docs and we're doing all that in real time. But but our process for this book, we were actually together because we wrote it in the before times. Uh-huh. And so our process, there are a couple of, you know, I, I know I'm sure writing duos, everyone does it differently. But there are a couple of things that really worked for us. There were some understandings that are at the basis of our relationship. And the first one was that every day I would fight the Seattle traffic to get to Tracy's house. And then Tracy would make lunch and sometimes dinner and sometimes breakfast and all the coffee and definitely the snacks, (laughs) which are a key part of our writing process. I'm the food gal. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then I guess some other understandings would be 
and a little bit more kind of getting a little more granular. I know you weren't really asking us about the food and, and the traffic, but, but in terms of deciding on direction, one of the things that we really decided early on, um, and that really came very naturally to us because we've been friends for so long, was that if both of us aren't 100% comfortable with a given direction, we just keep working at it until it's something that we both love. Um, and a, another writing duo we met um, very succinctly stated that rule as no always wins, which is great. Mm. Um, so that that was one um, kind of underpinning to our collaboration. Yeah. And then another one, a final one, would be um, no apologizing. And obviously there are things you should apologize for if you're <laughs> or mean. Um, you should apologize. But we decided to stop wasting time on things like, oh, this isn't that good or, you know, it's, it could be better and, and just own it and um, not get hung up on, on that type of self-doubt with mm. each other. So if um, someone apologizes by accident, <laughs> the other person always says, did you just apologize? <laughs> okay. But you're probably wanting to know a little bit more, like, how do we actually divide up the work of writing a novel? That'd be great. Sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really like what you're telling me so far. I, I love how that's the, the division going into it and the overall. But, yeah, sure. Uh, what what more goes into it? Uh, so, well, you, so why don't you start with how we, we plot things? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So um, because there are two of us, we – um, figured out pretty early on that we had to be plotters and not pantsers, um, flying by the seat of our pants. Mm -hmm. So, um, so we early on discovered Scrivener and, um, that became just a huge boon to our, um, collaboration. That, that was great. So we, um, we use Scrivener really, um, in, in a lot of detail. We would plot every scene, um, know where it was going to start what the setbacks were going to be in the scene, where they were, where the scene was going to end. And this was also, this was really important because we each needed to know what the other one was working on so we could pick up where the other person left off. So we're very, it became a place to put all of our thoughts, all of our character development, all of that. So it was that, that was a huge element of our partnership. Um, I'd say another one is um, using multiple points of view. It took us a little while to figure that out. In fact, that first draft that Tracy was talking about was written from a single point of view. Um, but we finally discovered that multiple points of view um, worked really well because it enables us to naturally distinguish voices from one another. So we tend to assign first draft responsibilities by character to one or the other of us. And then they develop the voice, breathe life into that character, and then we bring it all together and we edit everything together. Okay. Right. Yeah. Outstanding. Um, yeah. <laughs> My friends at Scrivener are going to love hearing about this. So they are a sponsor of the show. So they're gonna they're gonna love this. Oh great. Terrific. We're big fans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so am I. So am I. I I still don't know everything on there. Uh maybe not even half, but I love using it and discovering like, oh great, I can do that now. Right, right. Yeah, we feel that same way, that there's probably so much more we could be getting from it, but as a, a tool, it's incredible to be able to just have everything in one place um, 
that we can each refer to. Like if I want to write late at night, I can go in there and I can see what Tracy was up to and then, um, and keep going. So it's really a handy tool. Absolutely. So girls with a bright future, um, about three women, three daughters, and a promise that they'll each get what they deserve has been described as darkly funny and shocking. And uh, it's got some fantastic reviews online. Tell us, um, tell us a little bit about the book, I guess, without, without spoilers. Okay, great. Well, so Girls with Bread Features is the story of three prep school mothers whose daughters are locked in competition for a single spot at Stanford. And when the competition heats up, an attempt is made on one of the girls' lives, which sends this privileged community into kind of a spiral of panic and accusations until you can't help but wonder if there's any line these families wouldn't cross to secure their daughter's futures. So it's a suspenseful read that also takes a deep dive into um, the college industrial complex, income inequality, and elite entitlement. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) All right. Well, now what uh, what's next for you after this? Do you have is there another uh, a, a sequel to this, or is, do you have something completely different? Well, it's really funny because um, we're both moms, and we joke that that having your first book published is kind of like having your first baby. As soon as the baby's born, <laughs> everyone's like, when are you going to have another one? <laughs> mm-hmm. So we are working on another book. It's not a sequel, um, and that's about all we're ready to say at the moment, but we're super excited about it. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm sure it will be. Oh my gosh. Yes. And this is already, like I said, this has got some great, uh, some great feedback already. Uh, Pop sugar and parade magazine loving it. This is is a lot of hard work is put into it. And uh, it looks like you're paying the dividends uh, through that. Where can people find and follow you to? So you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Cats and Dobbs. So K-A-T-Z-N-D-O-B-S. It's our little play on cats and dogs. Or cats and dogs. <laughs> it seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun, but I this is I recently got a puppy, a pandemic puppy, and so now I have a cat and a dog, but we're, we're going to keep our name. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are. Uh, we're picking up a puppy later in the week. Uh, our oh. first one in like ten years. So we're like, oh gosh, are we ready for this? Wow. <clears throat> <laughs> Probably not, but you'll love the puppy anyway. Right? Good luck. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's like it, it's got to replace uh, not getting to see the grandkids as much. So we're like, okay, oh, yeah. we'll do that. Yeah, that's really nice. But hopefully you don't have a book launching in seven weeks, because that's what I did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, mine, uh, like you, mine was uh, is behind me now. Now I'm working on the next one, so hopefully we'll, down the road, we'll see what happens. But thank you so much. Um, I'm going to make sure and put links to all of this, uh, your website, the uh, social media, and uh, the Amazon links, uh, everything in the show notes so everybody knows. They can just click there and get right on over. But again, thank you so much, Tracy and Wendy. This has been a lot of fun, and I can't wait to hear some of this book. Thank you so much. We've enjoyed this conversation. Great. Thanks for having us. (laughs) All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, time for me to step aside, try and keep warm, 
with my coffee, and uh, we're going to hand the floor over to our guests, Tracy Dobmeyer and Wendy Katzman with Girls with Bright Futures. Thank you so much. Um, so I'll just set the stage, and then Wendy's going to read for us. Um, so as we mentioned, our story features three moms, uh, tech giant Alicia, Kelly, who is a Stanford alum and a master of information politics, and Marin, who's a struggling single mom who works as the longtime personal assistant to wealthy Alicia. Marin's daughter, Winnie, has been the undisputed superstar at Elliott Bay Academy, and she's desperate to attend Stanford. In the prologue, we've just learned that Winnie has been in a terrible accident and is fighting for her life in the hospital. This excerpt takes us back three weeks, um, to three weeks before the accident. It's the first full chapter featuring Marin's point of view when she and Winnie learn that Stanford will only be allotting one spot to EBA for their incoming class, setting up a winner-takes-all competition between Winnie and Alicia's daughter, Brooke, that could spell disaster for Marin and Winnie. So it's three weeks until Stanford early admission application deadline. Marin Presley had walked the halls of Seattle's Elliott Bay Academy multiple times per week for the past six-plus years, though ordinarily she did so in her role as Alicia's personal assistant, fulfilling the multitude of volunteer commitments her boss had no intention of doing herself. In fact, Marin could probably count on two hands the number of times she'd appeared on campus simply as Winnie's mom. Unlike most of the other EBA moms, Marin had precious little free time, and when she did manage to carve out a few minutes for herself, she was loath to spend them sticking her nose in Winnie's academic business. Her daughter had that well under control. But at seven this morning, Marin had received an urgent summons from the college counseling office. It was a request. Or was it a demand for both Marin and Winnie to meet that morning with Winnie's college counselor? EBA moms frequently speculated that the school's seven college counselors had virtually unchecked power to sort students into elite universities. At back-to-school night, Marin had overheard a group of parents swapping stories about dropping everything when the college counseling office called. No matter if they were titans of tech in the middle of negotiations, doctors performing routine surgery, or even, almost unbelievably, a wealthy divorcee undergoing a labia resurfacing procedure. Being essentially invisible at EBA had its amusing perks. So Marin figured she'd owed it to Winnie to show up this morning. Checking the clock on the way into the office, she hoped that whatever the reason for the meeting, it could be dealt with quickly so she could get to work on Alicia's massive to-do list for the day. When Marin walked into Miss Lawson's office, Winnie was already there, sitting on the edge of her chair, her long blonde hair pulled back in a messy bun. Marin noticed Winnie staring at the wall with longing her eyes and followed her gaze to the array of college posters and pennants that formed a patchwork mural of leafy quads, gothic architecture, and earnest students of all shapes, sizes, and colors. Hi, Miss Lawson. I'm Marin Presley. We met last spring. Marin shook the counselor's hand and slid into the open seat next to Winnie. Right, Miss Lawson said with a growing smile. I still can't believe you're old enough to be Winnie's mom. She turned to Winnie. You're so lucky. My mom had me when she was 43, and people always thought she was my grandma. So embarrassing. I mean, other than the way you two dress, you could totally be sisters. If I had a nickel, Winnie laughed. At 35, Marin was well aware she stuck out at EBA, the elite prep school version of a sore thumb. In high-income Seattle, most moms her age were still nursing babies or chasing after toddlers. 
Although Marin tried not to call attention to herself, the comparative youthfulness of her skin set her apart from fellow moms of EBA seniors, most of whom were a generation older. But whatever small advantage Marin gained with her natural glow, she lost a hundred times over with her glaring lack of any of Seattle's subtle signifiers of status. Electric luxury vehicles, athleisure clothing paired with designer handbags, prestigious professional degrees useful for dropping into casual conversation, preferably in shorthand. My marketing professor Kellogg used to say, or even better, an acronym, when I went to HBS. Marin could hardly wait until the coming spring when Winnie and Alicia's daughter Brooke would graduate from EBA and Marin could watch this place recede in the rearview mirror for good. Miss Lawson twisted the cartilage piercing in her ear. So, hey, yeah, so I've been charged with delivering some uh, difficult and pressing news. Her defeatist tone struck Marin as incongruous with the we make your dreams come true ambiance of the college counseling office. Okay. Marin tucked her calloused hands under her thighs and pressed her clip nails into the tasteful wool slack she'd scored at Value Village last year while dropping off a gigantic load of castaways from the closets of Alicia and Brooke. Though it sometimes took every ounce of her willpower, Marin's policy on hand-me-downs from her employer was strict, as in never, ever do it, even for Winnie. The only time she'd broken the rule was in Winnie's ninth grade year, soon after she'd started at EBA. Winnie had begged Marin to let her keep one of Brooke's discards with the tag still attached, a cute pink and thoughtfully pre-torn sweatshirt. The very next day, she'd worn it to school, but the instant she'd walked in the door after cross-country practice, she'd yanked it out of her gym bag and cut it to shreds. It was around the time Brooke had inexplicably started icing Winnie after years of close friendship. Marin had understood things were not great between them by that point, but she'd never known Brooke to be vicious. Apparently, Winnie had been taken by surprise as well. What news, Miss Lawson, Winnie prompted her counselor. As they continued waiting for Miss Lawson, while she shuffled papers and avoided their eyes, Marin kept her expression neutral and held her posture in the decorous manner that had been drilled into her by her mother in the stifling dining rooms of her childhood home and country club, perhaps the only lesson that still served her from that long estranged relationship. Miss Lawson tilted her head up as though consulting a teleprompter on the ceiling. Well, um, you see, she pushed up her sleeve, revealing a small black butterfly tattoo on the inside of her forearm. Four student athletes, an EBA record, actually, have committed to Stanford. Now, I know we've been talking about Winnie applying early to Stanford since last year, and of course the deadline is only three weeks away. But, well, here's the unfortunate part. We've been in touch with Stanford admissions and have learned they only plan to accept one additional student from EBA this year. But didn't they take seven students last year? Winnie asked, her voice rising. Miss Lawson nodded. Yes, but it turns out they're really pushing to increase their public school yield this year, so we can't accept as many kids from top-notch private schools like EBA as they did last year. But the whole reason I moved from public school to EBA was to improve my chances of getting into Stanford. Before Miss Lawson could respond, Marin jumped in. That's interesting information, but Winnie's ranked first in her class and also has that first-gen hook. So what does that have to do with her? Not only was Winnie an academic standout, but they'd also been informed by the college counseling office last spring that Winnie was blessed with an admissions hook of special interest to elite colleges, the first-generation college student. 
Marin had been pleasantly surprised by this, although it sort of felt like receiving a Nobel Prize posthumously. But apparently, she'd celebrated the victory prematurely, because Marin knew exactly what this news meant for Winnie, and she suspected Winnie did too. Nevertheless, if they were going to get the shaft, Miss Lawson at least owed them the courtesy of copying to it out loud. Miss Lawson squirmed in her chair. Um, yes, well, of course, under ordinary circumstances, as we've discussed, Winnie would be an excellent candidate for admission. But with the number of remaining spots so limited due to the unusual number of amazing athletes this year, there are other um, considerations. There might be students who, you know, have stronger hooks than Winnie's. What I'm trying to say is that while Winnie is free to take her chances, we think she might be better served by applying somewhere with a little less in-house competition. After all, that first-generation hook is golden at any Ivy Plus college. Miss Lawson must have mistaken Marin's look of disgust for one of confusion. Ivy Plus, she continued, is the term we use to talk about Ivy League schools plus Ivy equivalent schools like Stanford, MIT, Caltech, and the University of Chicago. Anyway, unlike Winnie, some other EBA students may have their best hooks with Stanford alone. Marin gritted her teeth and willed her eyeballs to remain centered. Her well-developed maternal warning system was blaring. It didn't take a genius to understand what Miss Lawson was really saying. They were clearing a path for either a Stanford legacy or someone with big butts or both. These EBA people were all the same. They all talked a big game about merit and equity, but the instant their sense of entitlement was threatened, they had zero qualms about politely, this was Seattle after all, manipulating the less fortunate in their orbit to stabilize the apple cart. But Miss Lawson, you said yourself last spring, I had the best chance of getting into Stanford of anyone at EBA. Why are you telling me to find someplace else and not another student? Winnie, you know I can't talk about other students with you. But are you saying the same thing to everyone? Winnie pressed, her voice quivering. Marin gently put her hand on Winnie's forearm. Win, it doesn't matter. Stanford isn't the only great school out there. We'll find another one, and it will be an incredible experience, I promise. You know what this is about. How can you just cave like this? This is my future. Why should girls like Chrissy or Brooke get a spot over me? Their moms do everything but take their tests for them. I've earned this all on my own. Miss Lawson consulted her computer and then looked up with a smile. Maybe you should look at this as an opportunity, Winnie. Your record is so strong. I'm certain we could find you a university that will offer you substantial merit money. What about University of Oregon or Case Western? They've been extremely generous recently to entice stellar students like you. Why do you assume we can't pay for college? Winnie's tone was biting. She never challenged authority like this. Just because we're not rich like everyone else here doesn't mean we need charity. Honey, that's enough, Marin, sparing the shocked Miss Lawson an awkward reply. Marin whipped her head back toward Miss Lawson. Thank you for letting us know about this development. Obviously, we have some things to discuss, but we don't need to take up any more of your time this morning. With eyebrows raised at Winnie, Marin scooped up her work bag from the floor and stood to leave. And then, like she always did, in the privileged community she inhabited only at the extreme margins. Marin smoothed her features into agreeability, bid Miss Lawson a good day, escorted her justifiably upset daughter out of the office, and took another one up the butt. Winnie followed Marin to the parking lot, even though she was already late for second period. The instant Winnie slammed the passenger side door, tears slid down her cheeks. It's not fair, Mom. Damn straight it wasn't fair. 
Meredith's hand shook with anger as she jiggled the key into the ignition. She'd put up with years of being treated as a second-class citizen at this school so Winnie could reach her full potential. But this would be a tough enough pill for Winnie to swallow without adding her own bile to the mix. She needed to be the calm, steady one. Life's not fair, Win. Marin reached over to touch Winnie's shoulder, but Winnie shrugged her off. Look, I'm doing the best I can, but I can't control everything. If there's only one spot at Stanford, it's got Brooke's name on it, not yours. If you even apply, I can guarantee Alicia will fire me. We can't risk that. She started the engine, which sputtered and rumbled before coming to life, and waited for Winnie to pull herself together and head off to class. But Stanford is all I've ever wanted. They can't take this away from me. I've done everything I was supposed to do. I put up with the years of nasty financial aid digs and smiled and kept my head down and outworked all of them, just like you said. This was the most Winnie had vented about her EBA experience since freshman year, when Brooke and all her friends were buying $1,000 bikinis for their winter break trips. In stark contrast, Winnie's vacation plan was to help Marin with her dog walking clients so she could afford the expensive outdoor gear on the packing list for EBA's community service trip to clean up Pacific Northwest beaches. The irony of scooping dog poop for a week to fund an opportunity to pick up even more trash did not escape her. Honestly, Winnie, I've never understood why Stanford is so important to you. Any degree will open doors and give you tons of choices. Why is only that one good enough? Isn't it possible you're buying into a myth? Winnie sniffled and glanced sideways at her mom. You know that Stanford t-shirt I've had forever? You mean the one you still wear, even though it's basically a crop top, Marin kidded? Yeah, Winnie drawled. I still remember the day Alicia brought it back for me after she took Brooke to Stanford. We were like eight. I remember every detail of it, how she handed it over to me, put her hands on my shoulders, and locked her eyes on mine. She made a big point of impressing on me how Stanford's the best school in the country. And if I worked very hard, I might be able to go there and be a success like her. I've thought about that so many times. It's not that I don't totally appreciate your choices, so don't take this the wrong way, but I just want more. I want to be super successful like Alicia and have the respect of everyone. Marin flinched at the inadvertent insult. Not that people don't respect you. Well, anyway, Alicia's always said I was like a daughter to her. Just because Stanford said only one more kid doesn't mean Alicia can't figure out a way around that. I mean, what if she had twins? Do you think she'd let one get in and not the other? She always said it was her dream to have us go there together. Me and Brooke used to talk about it all the time. Brooke and I, Marin corrected, and no, Alicia cannot help with this. Whatever, grammar Nazi, this isn't a college interview. It's a conversation. Sorry, Marin said, berating herself for reflexively picking the wrong battle. We have to think big picture here. I know you feel like Alicia has always been your champion, but you have to understand that nothing and no one will get in the way of her ambitions for Brooke. If you only knew how Brooke trashes her mom to everyone, it's really harsh. I mean, Alicia's only trying to help her. Brooke doesn't know how lucky she is, and she doesn't even want to go to Stanford. Also, she's got like a B-plus average. That should be like totally disqualifying. Marin nodded as Winnie finally paused for air. Listen, honey, I get why you're so frustrated, but the fact of the matter is we can't risk Alicia seeing you as Brooke's head-to-head competitor. So how about we don't rock the boat? If we can keep Alicia on our side, we can make sure you end up at another great school. Harvard, Yale, Columbia? No, 
What do you mean? No to which one? I mean, N-O, no, as in no effing way to any of them. You always said I should go after my dreams. Well, that's what I'm going to do. I don't want to move to the East Coast. I want to go to Stanford. I'll figure out a way with or without your help. Marin hunched forward in the driver's seat and wrapped her forehead on the steering wheel. You have no idea how bad this could be for us, poking Alicia like this. Please, Mom, I just want my fair shot at Stanford. I've at least earned that right. Marin ran her fingers through her straight blonde hair, trying to collect her thoughts, but her brain was as scrambled as the eggs she'd whipped up two hours earlier for the Stone family. All she knew for sure was that she needed more time. Look, let's just put a pin in this for a few days. At least give me the weekend to think this through. But apps are due in three weeks. Am I supposed to waste like a whole week when I could be working on my essays? That's crazy. Marin pictured a decibel meter, but for hysteria, and watched the needle go haywire. Calm down, Wynne, Marin said. There's no reason you can't keep working on your essays, right? Won't you need them for any school? No, I won't. These essays are specific to Stanford, Winnie Huff. If you'd pay even like one-tenth as much attention to my life as the other moms do, you'd know this. I mean, I'm not asking you to be a psycho like Chrissy Vernon's mom, but at least know the difference between the common app and supplemental essays. Finally, Marin's temper flared. She smacked the steering wheel. I don't have the kind of time these other moms have to obsess over their daughters. You of all people know I have an insane full-time job and three side gigs on top of that, and I still struggle to pay all our bills. Marin rarely raised her voice at Winnie. She glanced out the driver's side window for a second and tried to temper her tone. Listen, I've always trusted you to ask for the help you need, and you're never obnoxious like this. Winnie looked chagrined. I'm sorry, you're right. I think that was me trying to ask for help and totally blowing it. It's just, I've never wanted anything more than this. Will you please try to see it my way? Dream a little bigger? Just give me a few days, Marin pleaded, okay? Winnie pulled her backpack from between her legs and into her lap and fiddled with the zipper. I guess, she said with a disgruntled shrug. Anyway, I gotta get to calculus. See you tonight. The jolt of the car door slamming reverberated inside Marin. She watched Winnie dart off to class, her long, lean body accentuated by her standard school attire of a fitted hoodie and skinny jeans with more holes than fabric. Before backing out of the parking spot, Marin glanced in the rearview mirror and noted the dark circles under her eyes. Winnie might not think Marin had dreamed big for them, but her naivete made Marin feel like her chest was going to explode. Marin's entire adult life had been devoted to securing Winnie's future. The last thing she wanted was to deny her daughter the only thing she truly desired. But still, what Winnie wanted was 100% impossible. Without Alicia, she would have no income, no job prospects, no safety net. Once Winnie was done with college and out on her own, the power Alicia wielded over Marin would fade. But for now, Marin knew she had no choice. She had to convince her daughter to apply ABS anywhere but Stanford. All right, that was Tracy Dubmer and Wendy Katzman reading a sample chapter from their debut novel, Girls with Bright Futures. The book is available right now, so click that link in the show notes for, for the book and to find and follow uh, Tracy and Wendy. You can also, of course, find and follow the show on all social media and everywhere podcasts are listened. 
Don't forget to also click that link in the show notes for our sponsors and podcast friends alike. And hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out next week when I will be back with an all-new author, a new book, and a new sample chapter. Take care, everybody. God bless. This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network.